Folks, welcome back to our series called Tremors, a study of the subtle activity of God. Today, we are in a once glorious cathedral here in the town of Philippi. This building was built by Christians here in Philippi back in 550 AD, and it was absolutely amazing. It was glorious of worldwide reputation. People were talking about this amazing structure. The walls were towering high, and, and the roof was composed of two massive domes, bigger domes than had ever been seen in the world before. It would have been a glorious engineering feat had it worked. Unfortunately, it was a complete disaster. Believe it or not, once it was almost finished, when they were putting the final touches on this building, the weight of these two stone domes was so extreme that the walls were unable to bear them. Eventually, uh, the walls began to shake and then collapsed and the domes came down and the whole thing was a wreck and it was never dedicated, never rebuilt. This is a testimony to engineering failure. Yet I find myself strangely relating to this cathedral. Maybe you can too. Do you ever feel like the weight that's on your shoulders is too much for you to bear? Do you ever feel like you're dealing with stuff that is just crushing you, that you're going through and facing hardships, whether it be in your family, marriage, parenting, or finances, or health, or work. Do you ever feel like, I just can't make it? I mean, this is unbearable, and feel like you're going to collapse? Well, I have good news for you. We're going to discover today that one of the ways, one of the subtle activities of God is that he strengthens his children when they endure hardship. We're going to learn from Paul and Silas, who are about to go through something more difficult than anything you or I have ever faced. And yet, a tremor came along, and God sustained them. God strengthens, and we're going to learn how he can do it for us as well. When we left Paul, he had just delivered a demon out of that young slave girl, do you remember? And she was delighted to be freed of that demon, but she had to admit to her slave owners that she could no longer predict the future. They were not happy because they just lost a great source of income. Let's read. In verse 19 it says, When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They're upset, and they want this Paul and Silas arrested. Where is this marketplace that they dragged them to? Folks, this is it, right behind me. This is what the ancients called the Agora, the marketplace. It was the center of ancient life. It was the place where business was conducted. It was the place where people came to socialize in the large open plaza. This is the Agora, and it also happens to be where the courthouse was. In fact, we know specifically where the courthouse is. It's on the northwest corner of the Agora. Let's head on over there.
Here at the end of the Agora was a massive municipal building. We can see the ruins here today. This was the courthouse. Back then it was called the Curia. This is where Paul and Silas were dragged for their mock trial. Let me read verse 20. It says, They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What are they being accused of? All they did was help a girl who was demon-possessed, but they're being accused of being Jews, of, of uh, disturbing the peace, and of advocating customs that are new to them. It's ridiculous, but the people went with it. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Roman punishment took place publicly, so Paul and Silas would have been dragged out here to the front of the Curia, where everybody in the Agora could see what was about to happen. They were stripped of their clothes to humiliate them and to make sure that nothing protected them from the blows of these rods. The rods that those officials used were like this. Can you imagine a whole team of them gathering around Paul and Silas and just wailing on their backs until they were a bloody mess? Sadly, it seems that police brutality is not a new thing. These innocent guys, and it gets worse, friends. Let's turn now to verse 23. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's important, the, the inner cell, the stocks, these are details we need to understand. First of all, the inner cell was that that jail cell that was deepest and down low. It was a dungeon. It was the spot where rodents and filth and there was no natural light. It was a horrific environment. That's where Paul and Silas were placed. Friend stocks were miserable. Can you imagine? Paul here, his friend Silas here. Not only did stocks immobilize a prisoner, but they tortured him. I'll tell you why. First of all, we already learned that they were pummeled, flogged with these rods. Both of them would find their backs to be a bloody mess. And in stocks, there's no way for a prisoner to get in a comfortable position. You can't lay back on your side or on your stomach. The only option is to lay back on your injury. Friends, these two guys were being tortured. They were in an environment miserable beyond our wildest dreams. So what were Paul and Silas doing in this miserable place? Well, let's find out, shall we? Verse 25. About midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Friends, can you imagine? These two guys should be miserable. They should be weeping. They should be despondent to the extreme. And as it is, they are lifting their voices in joyful praise and celebration of their God. This moment of Paul and Silas in this miserable dungeon, yet filled with joy in the Lord, is just absolutely mind-boggling. What it tells us, one of the important things it tells us, is that it is possible to have joy even in the worst circumstantial seasons of life. I've always wondered that, have you? Have you, have you ever wondered, could you have circumstances so bad that joy, you know, the love of life, is just simply inaccessible to someone in that situation? You might think so, but it's not the case. There is always the option of joy. Paul was so big on this theme. In fact, in his epistles, the, the letters that he wrote, he turns to it again and again. Joy, even in suffering. Let me show you. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I am full of joy, though I am suffering. 2 Corinthians 6.10, I am sorrowful, yet I'm always rejoicing, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 12.10, I delight in weakness, in hardships, in difficulties. Here again, Romans 5.3, we can rejoice even when we run into problems and trials. Or Philippians 4.4, this, this Paul writes to the people of Philippi that he knew so well, and he writes it from prison. Rejoice in the Lord always even in the worst of situations. Paul returned again and again to this possibility of people who are struggling so much circumstantially, still finding joy in the Lord. My mom uh, just yesterday gave me an update on a family friend, and she said, Jeff, he is crippled. He's, he's aging, and as a result of his, his old age, he is crippled with chronic pain. And she added, but he's fighting to love each day. And I thought to myself, that's it. It is possible, no matter what happens to us, for us to find joy. And you say, well, how? That's the right question. And friends, the great thing is that this simple verse that describes Paul and Silas together worshiping God, it, it lays out for us the key steps to finding that joy, finding the subtle strengthening of God in your soul in the midst of hard times. Shall we look? Here, let's return to the verse, and I want to highlight first about midnight. About midnight? Shouldn't they be sleeping? Why aren't they sleeping? They can't. They are physically in so much pain, the inability to lay back and get comfortable. So this is just a, a little reminder that they're not living in denial of their pain. They're not closing their eyes and pre pretending that it's not there. This joy is joy feeling the pain, yet finding the joy. Moving on. I want to highlight now, to God. They were praying and singing hymns to God. You say, well, isn't that obvious? Well, no. There, there are people who say prayers and sing hymns, and God has no part in it. 
You know, it's possible to go through these religious motions without experiential connection with the presence of the Lord. Well, with Paul and Silas, they were praying and singing to God. He was there. In fact, this is what I want to be our first point. Recognize the presence of God. Friends, if you want to find joy, uh, if you want to be strengthened to the point of delight, even in excruciatingly difficult times, the first step, find the presence of God. Recognize God's presence. How many people were there in that dungeon? Paul, Silas, and God makes three. In that moment, they were feeling, sensing, enjoying the companionship of their maker like maybe never before. And friends, that's what brings joy. It's, it's, it's the Lord. It's connecting with him. He's the greatest thing in the universe. And so to find him in shared experience is absolutely amazing. Uh, I, I read that Chuck Colson, uh, he was one of the politicians caught up in the Watergate scandal, ended up getting thrown in prison because of his role in that. And he became a Christian right as he was going to jail. And yet he said this, he said, I have never felt the presence of God in any church as powerfully as I felt him in prison. Friends, there is something about these dark, difficult seasons where God seems to give us an extra dose of his nearness. So look for him. We need to connect with him if we're going to find joy in the dungeon. What else? Not only recognize the presence of God, also recognize the goodness of God. You say, where do you, where do you get that, Jeff? Well, what were they singing? They were singing hymns. What are hymns? Hymns are songs that celebrate God, that with poetic language describe the worthiness of God to receive our praise. They, they are statements that describe beautifully all those attributes of God that make him so admirable. And it's so important when you're in a tough time to say, this circumstance may be terrible, but my, my God is awesome. And if you can not only sense his presence, but be reminded of his beauty. You know, he is the ultimate beauty in the universe. Nothing is comparable as gazing upon the goodness of our God. If you can be reminded of his love and of his faithfulness and of his strength and of his passion, oh, you can be just mesmerized by him. You know, there's an old hymn that's a uh, hundred years old. You may know what it says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you can gaze on the, the beauty of our God, it will just enrapture your heart and bring you a joy, even when everything else is a mess. So recognize the presence of God, the goodness of God. Recognize the spiritual gifts of God. When it says hymns, one of the things that hymns celebrate is not only the goodness of God, but these spiritual gifts, these blessings that come to us in Christ. Hymns really are, uh, songs are so good at poetically describing the doctrines. What doctrines am I referring to? 
doctrines like justification, regeneration, adoption, glorification. I know that those can sound very intimidating and technical, but they're really the spiritual gifts that are ours. Justification means just as if you never sinned. That means the forgiveness that is ours. Think about that. Think about in the worst of times, I am forgiven. It's gone. My sin has been wiped away by the shed blood of Christ. Or regeneration. That means I am a new creation. I am born again. My old life is gone. Jesus has made me a new creature. That's a gift. Or how about adoption? Adoption is a doctrine that celebrates that we're not only reconciled to God, he wraps his arms around us and calls me his kid. He says, you're mine. We're going to do life together in a love-filled covenant relationship. That's something to celebrate. Or glorification. This is the promise that we're heading to heaven and that in heaven we will be made perfect and that life will be perfect. Friends, these are ours, even in the worst of situations. So you start recognizing the spiritual gifts of God and you will find joy in the dungeon. One more. And that's to recognize the physical gifts of God. You know, the spiritual gifts of God are invisible things that the Bible tells us we have in Christ. The, the physical gifts of God are those tangible, visible things like, well, friendship. We, we see that with Paul and Silas. I'll highlight that. Paul and Silas. As these two were together, one of the tangible things that they enjoyed was just being together. The, the joy of Christian friendship of shared adventure, shared suffering for the Lord. Friendship and things like a sunrise and things like a beautiful song and things like a flower or a cup of coffee with a friend. The coffee and the friend, these are gifts of God. If we pause to recognize them as that and delight in them in his presence, enjoying these physical gifts from God, they're always there. Even though we're in a dungeon, there are still beautiful physical gifts from God for those who have eyes to see. And in these ways, that dungeon became a place of glorious kingdom joy that both Paul and Silas entered into profoundly. And friends, so can we. Have you ever heard about the violinist who played down in the subway? It was the Washington Post that wanted to do an experiment. So they hired the very best. Uh, Joshua Bell, have you heard of him? He is a world-renowned violinist. He fills concert halls, sold out all around the world. And front row tickets can be as expensive as $500. And yet this concert was free. What the Post did is they had him go down into the subways of Washington, D.C. during rush hour on a particular morning. Here was arguably the greatest violinist in the world playing a $3.5 million Stradivarius, playing the best songs, all Johann Sebastian Bach, his very best. I mean, this was music that was glorious. Now, he didn't look extraordinary. He just wore a baseball cap, T-shirt, and jeans. He was playing in the subway like a common street musician. And on that day, the results were staggering. 
over 1,000 pedestrians walked right past the opportunity of a lifetime and never even paused to enjoy the music. Now, six stopped. Six listened. Six were drawn in and had the joy of a lifetime. In fact, I heard it, one of the women who paused, she was interviewed. She says, it was amazing. She said, I was in ecstasy. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And friends, uh, everybody else missed it. I think it's a picture of life, don't you? Yeah, life feels like we're down in a darkened, dingy subway sometimes. And yet, though we're walking through that difficult world, there is art, there is beauty, there is one who can make your heart soar. It's God. Paul and Silas understood that. Though they were down deep in the dungeon, they connected with the Lord, with his presence, with the beauty of his character, with his gifts, both spiritual and physical. And their hearts soared as they sang in the dungeon that day. Friends, are you connecting with God? It's what we were meant for. It's the way we can find joy, even in the most difficult days. You know, my grandmother has modeled this for me. I lost her. She passed away three years ago at the age of 99. And I remember talking with her towards the end of her life, our conversation topic brought about her just quoting a verse that she had memorized. And I said, Grandma, that, that Bible verse is awesome. How, how did you memorize that? And she explained, well, it's one of my 26. And I had to find out what she was talking about. I go, what do you mean you're, you're 26? She explained. She said, Jeff, well, what I've done is I've looked at the 26 letters of the alphabet, and I found 26 verses each one of them, it starts with a word that starts with a letter that corresponds to each of the letters of the alphabet. And, and she says, sometimes when I'm struggling to sleep or sometimes when I'm down, you, you got to understand, in those final years, my grandmother was living without the husband that she had loved so much, living without the health that she had enjoyed most of her life. And in those very difficult sleepless nights, she would just go through one after another, those 26 verses, using the alphabet to trigger her to start each verse. And she says, Jeff, when I was reminded of that truth about what I have in Jesus Christ, about who God is to me, she says those dark hours could become beautiful. And I, I found a strength and a joy that only Jesus can bring. It's true, this is not pie in the sky. This works, my friend. And my prayer for you is not that you would avoid the dungeon. We can't do that. That's life. But my prayer for you is that you would find the glory in the darkness, that you'd connect with the beauty of God and what he brings to us through Jesus Christ, and that you'd be able to rejoice always, even in those dark hours like Silas and Paul did. In fact, I want to pray for you towards that end right now. Lord, I know that my friends, well, we're all going through it. This pandemic is so hard and the racial tension is just so difficult. And I'm sure financial and health 
strains abound in our congregation as well. No matter what the darkness, the dungeon, whatever form it takes, this is what I pray. God, I pray that they would increasingly turn to you and find you, find your presence and find your love and see and enjoy your gifts. And God, would you help my friends, even this week, enter into a joy they have not tasted in a long time, maybe never. Give them the joy of the Lord. I pray this for each of them. I pray this for me. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.